Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Support for the Children's Book Podcast comes from 12 by 12. Picture book authors need to be fairly prolific to be published. That's why members of 12 by 12 aim to write one picture book draft a month. Through an online forum, monthly webinars, a private Facebook group, and more, members enjoy the accountability, support, and motivation of a fantastic community of authors and illustrators. Visit 12by12challenge.com slash membership for more information. only time I went to Baltimore, um, I'm a huge, huge John Waters fan. Oh, and, yes. Uh, <laughs> back in the mid-80s. So I was young. I was maybe 19. Uh, and I had just read Shock Value. And I uh, I went hunting for Edith's shopping bag. And I didn't know she had died the year previously. So I spent like a day driving around Baltimore trying to find a non-existent place. This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 668. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. Today I'm speaking with Eric Gansworth, author of Apple, Skin to the Core. Eric's memoir in pictures and verse is also an exceptional audiobook, which Eric reads himself. It's a privilege for me to bring you this conversation today. Please welcome my guest, Eric Gansworth, author of Apple, Skin to the Core. Uh, my name is Eric Gansworth, Sahwek Nasa. Um, I'm a member of the EO clan, enrolled at Onondaga Nation. My pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I'm a writer and visual artist. I've worked in fiction, poetry, memoir, drama, drawing, painting, photography, and occasionally sculpture. My newest book is my 12th. It's called Apple, Skin to the Core, and it's a memoir in poems and images. Um, I've written with an adult audience in mind for much of my career, but for the last decade, I've been focusing on work for younger readers. Eric, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Eric, what, what, let me just start out the gate and ask you, because I, I feel like it's always a little bit different and a little bit the same reason for folks, but why do you write for younger readers? Why do you write for young adults, for that middle grade audience? What draws you to write for them? You know, I think much of my, my strangely enough, my niece, who is also uh, writing, um, was kind of asking me a similar question last night. She's like, well, what what brings something on? What is your next project? How do you decide? Yeah. And uh, and it's very organic for me. You know, like the whole thing has always um, been intuitive. And, uh, and I've, even if if I look back at all of my work for adults, 
um, a good percentage of it is about young life. And that's been, you know, like kind of a major concern of mine and something that I go back to all the time. I suppose if my work has um, any continuity, it is that the past informs the present. And so, um, you know, and it's constantly informing the present. And finally, it was actually meeting Debbie Reese. Um, at a conference, we were both keynoting, and I had, as part of my keynote, I read a short story that takes place when the characters are, I think they're 12. And, uh, and she said, you know, why don't, why don't you write for young people since you write about young life so vividly? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it just never occurred to me. And, uh, and so I thought, well, I don't really know that world very well. And, uh, and I said, I'm assuming that there are expectations of those kinds of narratives that I don't know about and, and probably, you know, haven't mastered for sure now and I'm not sure that I could. And she said, well, I'm going to keep pestering you and the right opportunity will come. Oh, I love I that. Said, you know, a, said, a cheering <laughs> section saying, I believe you can do this and I'm not going to let you rest until you try. That's wonderful. Right. <laughs> And, uh, and like two years later, um, she said, how'd you like to write a kid's book for Scholastic? Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, um, well, I really can't turn that down. As an idea, I have to explore this. <laughs> and uh, she had been contacted by Cheryl Klein, who was with uh, Arthur A. Levine at the time, and saying that in all of her career, she had never received a submission from an indigenous writer. Wow, never even received a submission. Never okay. received a submission. And uh, and so she she said, "Do you want me to make the introduction?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'll have the conversation." <laughs> um, and it was, it was a long road from there because I had a huge learning curve um, to understand what it meant to write for young people as opposed to writing about young life for adults. And Cheryl was a really um, unfathomably generous mentor in the process. The the writing for young people, I feel like it, it ends up being this really interesting place because we respect children so much and we respect their agency and uh, their intellect and them being able to hear a story at whatever age and not not need to have a handheld but but allow them to ask questions and to to just understand. I, I find the, the books that resonate most closely with me are often the ones that I feel like, wow, you, you deeply respect your reader. And that's uh, a wonderful, wonderful space that authors can get to. Is it at all like writing for your childhood self, whatever that means? When you're tapping into writing a story and thinking about a younger audience, are you thinking would this be something that you would have read? Uh, oh, it's definitely something I would have read for sure. Um, but I, what I discovered was uh, over the over this time that I've been working for, for young readers, um, that friends of mine, you know, I'm in my mid-50s, so a lot of my friends are peers, you know, people who are of the same generation. And, uh, and, and they've said, how do you remember this stuff? Like, they don't remember their childhoods, <laughs> which is really shocking to me that they don't. I don't know if they're blocking or if my memory is, you know, if I'm just an obsessive person who has mulled over every event that's happened in my life or, <laughs> or what that. the deal is. <laughs> well, is it, is it possible that 
did you have folks in your life that talked about your experiences? I'm thinking about Apple and I'm thinking about your relation to not just those in your family, but those around you. Talking about experiences, I know, helps to solidify those memories. We're sort of doing that experiment right now, as all parents do. I have a five-year-old and a 10-year-old, and it's constantly that thought of like, what will they remember? What if we uh, talk about, at the end of the day, talk about things that we're thankful for? What if we recount moments of our day? Will that help to um, cement things? Or maybe, like you said, you just sort of have the brain wired to do it. Uh, do, do you talk about or did you talk about um, reliving experiences with, with your friends and family growing up? Um, I would say that that is definitely true. Mm. Um, that uh, I'm from a very large family. I, I had six siblings growing up. Um, and I was the youngest of them. So they were all like really fully established, yeah. you know, personalities before I came along. And uh, and in the certainly in my reservation culture, there's no such thing um, as the kids' table. There is the table, and so at a big party, if you decide to sit with the adults, you better be entertaining as well. Um, and so people <laughs> tell stories. You know, if you tell like a boring story and you're a kid, you're gonna kind of hear about it. So you learn to become a good storyteller quickly, um, and you learn by listening to how other people's stories function. Yeah. And, uh, and so my family, you know, they would just sort of recount, you know, things that had happened in the, in their past or when one of us was younger. And, um, and so probably in some ways, yes, the repetition must have, um, you know, embedded itself as, as a narrative style. And my, my narrative voice is very digressive. And so in some ways it's, it seems like the way somebody might tell a story in person. Yeah. Because it's not just the repetition, is it? It's also the the mode of storytelling, the way the story is told that that is shaping language and is shaping your own ability to tell a story, but also um, uh, but also teaches you those skills of like, oh, if you if you want something, as you're saying, if you want to stay at this table, this is the way the story needs to be delivered and land and hold tension and reveal things. I love that. I love this notion of like, there's no such thing as the kids table, but you better know if you're here, you have to show up. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> you, it's it's yeah. really hard when like the occasional kid has sort of entered my family, you know, through marriage or whatever, and who is just not prepared for what that meant. <laughs> um, and you have to learn kind of, you know, on the fly. That's right. It's time to learn. Hey, tell me about, or tell our listeners, I suppose, uh, a little bit about Apple Skin to the Core. What, what's your book talk for this? How are you sharing what this is with others? Other, beyond saying that it is a memoir in pictures and verse, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. My work, um, again, because it's sort of always intuitive, I'm never sure what form it's going to even take. Um, and I, I don't discover until sometimes even quite late in the process. Hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and this originally started, you know, at the idea phase as, um, as a series of paintings. So I was kind of interested, well, at first, I guess I'm interested in that slur and, and how people use slurs and how this is like a weird one in that it's an intra-community slur. You know, it's like not something others say, it's like something that... Um, an, an indigenous person says to another indigenous person as a critique, calling them an apple. And in some ways they're saying, well, you're too much like the white culture. You're, you're white on the inside, even if you look like an Indian, if you're red on the outside. And um, and so I, I got to thinking, well, where did that come from? First of all, why does somebody use that? I mean, we're such a 
disenfranchised group, period, mm. why on earth would we be doing this to one another? Right. And it occurred to me that, well, the, you know, what those people who are doing it are clearly must be afraid of you not carrying on the culture by not embracing your community's qualities. Oh, yeah. An, um, an act of self-preservation itself to to criticize in that way. That's not something I've heard of before. Also, yeah, the phrase was... itself was not something I'd heard of before, but you do lay that out for us in in the very first pages of the book. Yeah. Right. I thought that was necessary that because again, we're such a very small part of the um the larger population. I thought it was quite possible that nobody, you know, that much of the, the reading public who would be experiencing this book might have never even heard of it. Um and and I don't I, I can't recall, fortunately, anybody having ever said it to me directly, but do I suspect people have said it when I'm not around? Sure. Hmm. Because I work in education, and you know, uh, there is a fraught history of education within Indian communities because of the legacy of the boarding school. So it's kind, you know, my profession has left me in a complicated place to live. Yeah, I have. Um, if I can talk about my education briefly, um, I have something that that uh, I am. I feel like I'm ashamed to admit, but I'm also uh, reconciling with needing to own that. I grew up in Central Pennsylvania. Uh, and have plenty of family from Carlisle. And it was mm. not until I'm 40 now. It was probably not honestly until my mid thirties, probably not until Debbie Reese. Um, when she and I entered into this relationship where, where we have been in conversation constantly that I began to, to fully recognize that this wasn't just a thing in Canada. This was here in the States. And in fact, in this way, it was 30 minutes from where I grew up. Um, right. and, and just hearing it then laid out in your book, right from the start from, um, those family members that were sent there and those that got out and just, there, there were so many working pieces, Eric, that I don't think I even quite know now how to articulate it. Um, but it was all, it has been all mixed in with me. Uh, reading picture books to my students, like When We Were Alone by David Robertson, um, about boarding schools in Canada, about generations, about things changing, about that reflection of these schools set up over generations. It was not a short amount of time either. No, that, it was that, not. That, that caused, I mean, it's, it's, I feel like we talk about history and we were looking it up and what was it that the last boarding school closed in something like the early 1900s or maybe not even not early i'm saying that wrong it was like 1870 something to 1970 something i believe i remember whatever yeah. it was, was very 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 recently um and just feeling like and i partly know the answer to this but feeling like why was i never taught this ever why did no one talk about this and i think if i ask those questions i know the answer but i say that because I suspect your readers go through that same thing right from the outset of your book. Um, those that have not heard about boarding schools or heard about uh, assimilation of indigenous individuals in this way, um, I think get to start with 
with asking ourselves that question of why haven't you heard this? You need to listen extra close to this story that Eric's telling because this is something that you, you, you need to honor the truths that are being spoken. And I, I just appreciate that, if you will, the table was set that way in Apple. Right. And it's so very complicated. Um, I mean, in some really weird ways that um, that fact was part of what brought uh, Debbie and me together. Um, we had both been on a listserv of indigenous, um, I want to say, uh, Indigenous people in higher ed. I don't remember now. It's been a while now. I'm not hmm. on it, whatever it was anymore. Um, and I had known that there was a, a book about Carlisle and that there, and I had seen it once and then, you know, and I could not find it. And, uh, but there was a photo of my grandfather in it, you know, as a student. And, uh, and I think I must've posted to the, to the listserv about this book. If anybody knew um, where I might be able to find one. Yeah. And, uh, and she said, well, um, I've got one and I'll bring it to you when we meet at the conference. And so that was kind of the beginning of my, you know, finally taking the deep dive into Carlisle because in my family it was sort of talked about, but always really on the periphery. My, mm. you know, my grandmother was quite aged by the time I came along. Um, and so, but my siblings had and my mom had some stories from um, from her time at Carlisle, and so I was learning it largely secondhand. Um, and so it's, I think, even within our communities, it's not talked about very much, and and only in the most peripheral of ways. So it was really quite tough to to um, to finally find some people to talk about it and to talk about the experience. And you know, and I have um, one of the schools in uh in Seneca territory was open still in the mid part of the 20th century and so I was talking to a friend here who who went to the day school but she had family members who were at the boarding school and she said and they really just were um kind of wholly disenfranchised they were very disconnected from them and I thought wow what does so it succeeded in these really strange ways and then why was I so lucky that you know, my three grandparents who who had experienced this all had enough um, self-preservation to come home and and try and succeed at coming back. That's sort of the whole through line of Apple, though, isn't it? The why why was I so lucky to go through this? I feel like you you really lay out all of those imprints and moments in your life that that bring you to where you are. I I can't talk about that without talking about comics, of course, without talking about Kiss, without talking about lots of <laughs> lots of different things, but also just um it's so much about survival in the way again that I think childhood it is about survival and is about uh learning on your feet and uh learning learning about how the world sees you and how you see the world and whether or not the world accepts you. And sometimes it's a message you have to learn on your own. And sometimes it's a message people can, can try to teach you. I, um, I found, um, I experienced this book in sort of a really funny way. Um, I have, uh, seen an arc of your book and then otherwise I have fully consumed it via audiobook. 
And you oh. read the audiobook, and I absolutely loved you reading it. So as soon as we hopped on today, I was like, I know this voice. <laughs> but um, I would say I've had that reaction before. It seems very disorienting <laughs> to people to listen to a book and the conversation. <laughs> I, I will say, and this is a nod to my dear friend Nikki Grimes, who's also a poet. There's there's nothing better than than hearing someone read poetry to you. And it was wonderful to hear you tell your story in the way that you did, but but through through the way that you wrote it. I really enjoyed it. Eric, you have a beautiful, beautiful gift for 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 describing things not necessarily the way they look, but the way they feel. I don't know if that does that <laughs> makes sense if I say it that way. Yeah, it's, it's uh, um, I don't know. If, uh, I don't know if it's the if it's the uh, first thank you um, the, for noticing. <laughs> it may be the painter's eye, you know. Maybe. When you sure. when you paint, you really you have to see what's there as opposed to what you imagine to be there, which is a really tough lesson, and causes for some exceedingly disastrous early paintings. <laughs> well, I I wholly enjoyed. Uh, you reading to me. And then I should say you also in between the time I put it in order for a print copy from my, my indie store. Uh, and now you were recognized by the Youth Media Awards. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. That was, it was really shocking. Really my copy's shocking. on back order. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> so maybe it'll have a sticker on it when it arrives. I don't know. But um, very exciting. It was shocking. You got a call and everything. Did they call you early in the morning? It was um, actually for the, for the National Book Award. My, um, I was called fairly early in the morning. And I thought, why on earth are they calling me? Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, people know I'm not a morning person. <laughs> <laughs> Don't they know? Have they read my, my author flap? <laughs> and uh, so then... And, and by then, you know, because it only made the long list and didn't make it to the finalists. And so I thought, oh, OK, I'm not going to get my hopes about about anything else. And I had kind of forgotten about about the Prince Award totally. And uh, I mean, so much so that um, the people at Living Career were able to trick me. So they sent me an email saying, hey, can you Zoom um, about like a new marketing strategy um, this time on Friday? And I was like. Yeah, okay, I guess. I mean, we usually do this by phone, but <laughs> so clever. I'm right. <laughs> you know, since I, I since because of COVID, you know, I don't go out to restaurants no. anymore. So I thought, yeah, I could just throw the pizza in a half hour later, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so then the Zoom call came and I'm like, Who are these extra people here? And I was like really, really confused. <laughs> oh, nothing like an early call, feeling disoriented, and you're on video. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was great, you know. And I was uh, I'm not all that often speechless, but I was that day. I couldn't um, I could not wrap my head around being one of the honor books. That's cool. Well, congratulations. You were among out outstanding company, uh, and certainly um, when I saw that announce, I was like rooting for you cheering you on yay eric um and i think that there were a lot of folks named this year across the different awards that it just felt like ah it feels great when the universe really recognizes awesome people not that they don't every year but this year i think us all being away from one another not being able to be together and celebrate not being able even really to be in that book culture of 
sharing books. I didn't get to hand a, a book to a kid all year because COVID. We can't do that anymore. Um, it's true. I, I mean, we, we do like contactless pickup. We do that, but it's not it's so many layers removed that in some ways it almost just sort of like feels like we're playing library instead of doing library. It feels like we're playing right. make-believe that to see, um, to see names honored this year just felt like, yeah, this feels right. This feels like normal. This feels great. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so strange and to, you know, um, and my family has been, I have to say very conscientious. And so we don't really see each other. It's too mm. cold out to be sort of standing, to be standing outside even right now. Sure. I think it's like 16 degrees today. Um, and so, but when the, you know, the few times we do see each other, it's like in a driveway and seven or eight feet apart with masks on. And so it's yeah. been strange and complicated. It's been strange and complicated and your book won a major award. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, and to not be able to just kind of share, you know, to sort of share it by texting people is, it was like a weird. It's weird. Uh, joy. And yet I can't be there to tell you this in person. Yeah. I hear that. I'm I'm grateful that, and I know there's also sort of this other weird thing going on that, you know, all of these books were sold. You probably sold Apple what, like two years ago or something. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, I know that that's how publishing, traditional publishing, works. So to know that all of these books, too, the great comfort that they were, the great kinship we felt with so many different stories because they were in our life. I felt. I mean, some of the last lessons I was doing with my students, um, we were we were in a, a model that we were able to be back in school and then sort of go to virtual easily. But the, the last time we were together before we went back to virtual as numbers were spiking was talking about Orange Shirt Day, was talking about mm. Indigenous people's history, was talking about all of these things. And then suddenly we're gone and we're on a screen again. So I, it, it just, I was saying this to you before recording, but maybe a lot of other people have too. I have really felt sort of the pulse of the universe moving through me, connecting me with other people. It just has been very humbling or I feel like I feel all of my emotions just beneath my skin or I, I don't quite know how to describe it. But this book, Eric, your book, connected with me in such a way that I I mean I have to feel like I'm just going to be carrying this book around with me my entire life because it it meant something profound to me in the context of also the time that we're living in and the time that I read it and the connection to the people it made me think of and just it's I know you don't set out to write a book thinking that every person will experience things a certain way and in fact again you wrote it two years ago or or we're we're sold it selling it two years ago but um, I'm really grateful for, I guess I'm grateful for years ago, Debbie giving you a push. <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm also thankful that this book, um, that this book was on your heart and that you expressed your life, your childhood, your, your just your experience of, of walking through the world in this way. It's a really exceptionally beautiful book. And I, I was honored to have you read it to me. Well, thank you. <laughs> Um, there's a uh, there's a story that I've cited to numerous people and I, and and fairly often people have encountered it um, interestingly enough uh, about uh, about fate called uh, the Garden of Forking Paths by Borges 
and it's really, uh, you know, it's it's one of those types of stories where, you know, no matter which path you choose at one time, there there is this this end point that will be the logical end point of whatever that trajectory was going to be. And and this book has kind of been that way. Um, it's there has been a version of it, probably for almost ten years. And I had submitted it to adult poetry publishers. And um, and at the time, I want to say it's, it's around 2010, 2011, 2012, um, like very kind of abstruse, impenetrable uh, imagistic poetry was like what was really hot in the very small world of poetry. <laughs> and, uh, and so the editors just uniformly rejected it. They're like, yeah, nobody's buying this kind of narrative. This is my story stuff. So sorry, we have to pass. And and I just kept getting that over and over again. And uh, I thought, well, all right. I mean, I don't think that's entirely true because I certainly see plenty of books coming out that are very much um, narrative and personal. But, uh, you know, obviously you're making your business decisions and I have to respect that. And I kept rewriting it and working on it and, um, and thought, well, the right time will happen. And uh, And... In very quick succession, I had uh, I had, had dinner with uh, Arthur Arthur Levine um, at one of the conferences. I'm not even sure which one it was. No, we, I went to a lot of conferences in the last few years, <clears throat> and uh, and I had asked him. I said, "So, do you um, do you ever publish books of poems for young people?" Because you know, even then, it was a very different book. But even then, it was still very much a book that had young life as a central concern. And he said, well, we don't, we don't really as collections, but we do novels in verse. And I had never even heard that phrase before. And I was oh. like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll pass. And I didn't think about it again. I thought, you know, I don't, it's just not time for me to learn a brand new genre. <laughs> and then I want to say within six months of that, um, my friend Hyde Erdrich was a poet. She had been guest editing an issue of poetry. And, uh, and so there was, I think, just one poem, maybe two, um, of mine in that issue. And when it came out, I decided to share it with my, uh, my editor at Arthur A. Levine. That was Nick Thomas. And I said, um, hey, you know, this is great news. I'm really excited to finally be in poetry. Here are my poems. And uh, I just sent him a link. <clears throat> And he wrote back and he said, wait, this is what you do in poetry? Oh. <laughs> and I said, yeah, pretty much. And then I had been struggling with a novel that I was working on that was supposed to be the next book. And it was just coming very, very slowly. And he said, do you have a lot more that look like this? And I said, yeah, I have a, I have a book. It's not, it's not really targeted for young people right now, but I can show it to you. And that was where, where the conversation began. So, like, all of these various steps, you know, like, would not have happened without these other previous steps. Oh, and when I had talked to Arthur, he had given me a couple of novels in verse, and I thought, oh, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, that's so cool to have something handed to you that that held a mirror up to your voice in that way. That You know, the, 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 the novel in verse format is such an interesting and I think delicate format as you know as a poet as well I think that it it can look 
easy or simple or something to put words in verse and lay them on paper. It's an awful lot of white space. Uh, it, it feels like it can move faster, but I, I find reading a lot of novels in verse that you can, you can sort of tell the poets from the people just trying a different format out. And, um, when done well, same with a graphic novel, when that format is used well, it's undeniably the right format, the right vessel for the story. So I'm glad that Nick saw that in your work as well. And uh, and I mean, it's kind of funny, you know, as I think about this, like once you get asked a question, then like multiple doors open up and you think, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, this happened too, this happened. Um, and I had remembered that earlier, a friend of mine, the poet uh, Meg Carney, yeah. had uh, had also published a couple of novels in verse. And, and I had one of them. Uh, I had gotten it from, you know, when we'd seen each other last. And I went back and, and started reading it. And I thought, oh, I love what she's doing here. And, you know, and so once again, it was like the more I became aware of what other people were already doing in the in the form, the more I understood that it was sort of speaking to what I already do kind of intuitively with my work. That's great. And then you just had to keep sculpting it until it was all ready to go. And then it was magic and it was done. (laughs) And it's a hugely different book. I want to say that maybe a third of it is what was there when I showed it to Nick in the first place. And so the rest all came afterward. (laughs) After we'd agreed that was where it was going. (laughs) A testament to, though, that a work can live in you for years, a decade in your case, and... That doesn't mean that it's not worthy of being published. That doesn't mean that it's not the right fit or the right whatever. It just means that it's the idea is still shaping and forming. It's not ready yet. How wonderful to know. Thank you for sharing that you had been working on it for so long and that that it, it just hadn't found its form yet. Right. It's sort of, it seems weirdly like dating, I think, you know, it has to find its form and it has to find the right person who's willing to believe it at the same time. (laughs) How terrific. (laughs) And you're writing for young adults. That's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have truly loved my time with you, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing Apple and just sharing, sharing you. Thanks for sharing yourself. Thanks. Thanks for for having me. I want to close by giving you a chance to speak directly to your readers, to all readers, but I'm going to ask it in a very personal way that I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you, Eric? Um, I'd like them to know that, that most people who we get to know change us in some ways. They help us become ourselves. Some of those people can be found in the books we read. And even if everyone else in our lives is too busy for us, they don't have time at the moment, those friends we find in the books, you know, they're only an arm's length away. And I think people forget that. And I hope they, I hope first they experience it and that they always remember to keep that, to keep that in mind. This is Chelsea Lynn Wallace, author of A Home Named Walter, illustrated by Ginny Sue. 
A home named Walter is about a house that is sad when his family moves away, until a new young inhabitant helps him feel like a home again. You can learn more about A Home Named Walter by visiting chelsealynnwallace.com. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 650 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. Want to help out the show? Become a patron at patreon.com slash matthewcwinner and your support and contributions will directly support and impact his work here. And always, writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.